Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. to the Study Religion podcast. My name is Erica Bennett, and I am a current student in the Religion and Culture Master's program at the University of Alabama. This is the fourth and final episode to a special series on jobs after graduate school in the humanities. Take a listen to the first three episodes where Jacob Barrett and I listen to Bradley Summer, Pamela Gilbert, and Jared Powell give their academic history and their view on the state of the academic job market. In this episode, Jacob and I learn about a non-academic career path after a PhD program. Shannon Trosper-Shorey tells us about her experience leaving academia and entering the tech field. I find it interesting that both Jared and Bradley experienced a similar lack of information and help that was available to them for jobs outside of academia. I wonder if that's the exception to the rule or if most graduate students feel like they are diving in blind into a world outside of a traditional academic track. Do we know anyone from a PhD program who is now excelling outside of academia? That makes me think of some of the Zoom calls we've had with alumni in our master's program here at the University of Alabama. Some are working in politics, others in the medical field. Oh yeah, that makes me think of Shannon Trosper-Shorey. yeah, I'm Shannon Trosper-Shorey. A recent graduate from UNC uh, Chapel Hill's PhD program who's working a tech job um, here in North Carolina. I think she'll probably have great advice for those in graduate programs who aren't sure what they want to do after graduation. So I got my PhD from UNC Chapel Hill in 2018, I believe, um, exploring the intersection of religious history and Western intellectual history and um, philosophy of technology. So the question I was pursuing was like, how 
our technological communities thinking about technology and explaining technology and explaining to each other how technology works and how are those ideas sort of still invested especially with Protestant assumptions, with religious language, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, And because I was doing that, I had a chapter on open source. And so Red Hat is an open source company that I work at. It's one of the only open source companies. It was on my radar. um, And when I was in the dissertation writing phase, I landed a fellowship that allowed me to just write for a year, which is like the dream, right? (laughs) Like just going to do this one thing for a year. Uh, And I felt like it was super isolating, actually. It was my first time just having one thing on the oven. (laughs) And I was writing and I was kind of spinning my wheels and looking at the academic job market, looking at how few jobs there are um, and how a lot of them require one to three year jumps. And at that point I had made my husband jump pretty significantly twice, right? Like he had a wonderful job at our undergrad, forced him to start all over again when I moved uh, to Boulder for my master's and then did it again three years later and uh, decided that you know, I would only do that to him if it was for something truly important and meaningful to me, right? Like I didn't, that's just, I wanted to be a good partner. He'd been such a good partner. And uh, this job at Red Hat popped up and I was like, you know what, I'll apply. Like, I, I think I fit 70, 80% of the job description, which I've had people tell me all my life, like, that's what you need. And I was like, there's no, you know, there's nothing writing on this. I'm right. I'm writing. doesn't matter if I don't get it. It would be extremely interesting field work. I kind of looked at it like potential ethnographic field work. Um, and then I got the job. And so I started working at Red Hat while writing my dissertation, uh, finished in finished the dissertation 2018, so about a year in, um, and now I work as a senior communications strategist, which means that I do a lot of writing, editing, interviewing of stakeholders, literature reviews, analyst research, and coaching, especially our engineering leadership teams, to think about how they want to uh, frame internal messaging, like how, mm. what, does the product do like actually (laughs) and and what is our goal and what do we want to say about it when you started your phd uh was this even on your radar of jobs and if not what were you first planning to pursue in uh after your phd yes uh not at all uh not at all on my radar um honestly tech was on my radar because I knew that I wanted to think about how weird um, and delightfully weird, I think, philosophy around tech can get and how that always really resonated me uh, with me in terms of secularism and religious discourses. But working in tech was like not at all on my uh, radar. I was um, pretty... uh, narrow-minded, I guess, when I thought, I was like, okay, I'm going to do the right things. I got into my ideal program. UNC Chapel Hill was what I wanted. I um, published early and relatively often. I did the international and the 
national um, conference circuit. I taught, I got fellowships, like I was on track. I did the GSC rep stuff, things that, that you guys are doing, right? Like doing all the little things to, to make sure that the tenure packet, um, the tenure job packet is gonna be there. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know how to think about alternatives. I think what led, what led me to the alternative was honestly that like personal circumstance of looking at the job market knowing that it was not going to just be likely one or two years of jumping that it could be up to 10 years of jumping looking at friends who were you know older and extremely talented (laughs) and watching them do these jumps um so i think i just got curious and a little whimsical i applied to the red hat job without thinking too much about it and also like not upset if I wasn't going to get it. And I was still a year out from applying to academic jobs. So, you know, it was a good time to apply because there was like, yeah. I'll buy a lottery ticket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's two bucks. Yeah. I think that being curious and being a little whimsical is something that's that we could do a better job of helping graduate students. Where or how did you stumble across this job at Red Hat? Yeah, so I um, was not on the academic job market. Um, I had the list of materials that I knew that I needed to start putting together to go on the job market the next year. And I hadn't, I truly had not been looking at other outside jobs. It was just a creeping factor, a creeping feeling of, am I going to do this again? Like, am I going to, because at that point we had been at Chapel Hill five or six years. My husband was doing really well in what he wanted to do, right? Didn't want to like leave that again. Um, And honestly, what happened was luck. It was a combination of me being familiar with what open source was and what Red Hat was and Red Hat being in Raleigh and knowing that I, when I was going through the graduate program, that I wanted some networks that were not other graduate students that I got to a point in my third year where all my social networks were graduate students, which is delightful. I love, I love, love, love my peers, but it's very easy to talk about work all the time. (laughs) So I went to a meetup about watching horror movies and we would just go to this like random house in Raleigh (laughs) and watch horror movies with 20 other people. and one of them worked at Red Hat and she posted the job on her Facebook. And I said, okay, you know what? It sounds like a writing job. Tell me about it. Yeah. yeah. That also sounds like a potential horror movie. <laughs> it does. But see, I love horror movies. So it's like whimsy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In general, I think uh, going to watch horror movies at an unknown person's house that you found on the internet is a risky endeavor. <laughs> it, was, it was truly wonderful. So partly luck, a lot of luck. And I feel like that, I think that's similar within the academic uh, job market and outside the academic job market. There's always this like portion of luck. Are you going to get there at the right time? Are you going to get the job you want? Are you going to just hear about it through someone you might know, might not know? I think it's really important to highlight that actually, because I think a lot of what prevents people from looking for other jobs is a 
implicit belief in meritocracy within the academic system, right? So if you do all of the things and you do them well and you get the really prestigious grants and you just work all the time, you will get that job um, because the people that get the job get it because of their ability. And yes, like that's not not true, <laughs> right? Um, people in graduate programs are talented, self-starting people who wear so many hats. They're project managers, they run programs, they run their own research, they're writers, they're collaborators. Like these are skilled people. And if they finish a PhD, they are skilled people who have fairly early in their life establish them as an expert, like as an actual expert in something. So these are talented people. Um, but that belief in meritocracy overlooks this very real thing of networks and luck. And, yeah. you know, like another way to say luck is, is being in conversation with lots and lots and lots of people and I used to think networking was kind of a, a gross term, right? And I think it can be for some people, like, mm -hmm. I'm going to network with you to use you. But actually, networking can be as simple as just being radically interested in other people and sincerely interested in other people and uplifting them. And if they can do that, if you can do that for them, like, they're also going to open doors for you. So that, like, curiosity and being interested in other people, I think, does shake things up. And I think for me, um, it got a lot better when I took the goal out of it, right? Like, so if the goal is, if, if I'm telling myself the goal is going to this thing to build my network and to like get people interested in me, my social anxiety is off the roof and like, it's not gonna work. It's, not, it's just not gonna work. I'm not that charming. <laughs> then you have this like pressure that you, you have this about. pressure, I think people pick up on it too, you know, and I think if you're skilled at it, um, I think the business schools probably do a better job of like, what are the guardrails and how do you do this? And how, you know, like, I think that there is a structure that can help people. But for me, I think at UNC Chapel Hill, I was part of a cohort um, that was a little bit um, earlier in the program than me. So they were all leaving as I was coming in. And they were so generous and so collaborative and had made a very explicit pact with one another to lift each other up and put each other in conversation with folks that they knew that each other didn't know. And I think that that made such a big difference on my life that I could just kind of switch to being like, all right, well, you know, what are you interested in? <laughs> And yeah. tell me about your work and like, what makes you excited? And I think, you know, life is messy and work is hard no matter what field you're in. And if you meet somebody who's actually interested, yeah. you can get a lot, a lot of work. Bouncing off of this, um, while you were getting your PhD, what, or even before then, was there anything that you wish was different about the academic system in the sense of, what skills do you wish you might have gained through your multiple years in academia? <laughs> so through your lifetime <laughs> in libraries. Um, that's a really great question. I will say from a skill set, I think the PhD gave me almost everything. 
Um, and what, what they didn't give me is the ability to translate and to say that to other people, right? So like the skill set you get when you're in a PhD program and honestly in a master's program to some extent is the close reading, like close reading, the ability to ask good, sharp questions, um, understanding that any issue has several different layers of interpretation, mm-hmm. that those layers are going to be uneven because of history and power and location and the ability to start to like pick apart that complexity and not be overwhelmed by it is an unbelievable skill project management is a thing that people get paid really well for and every single grad student i've ever met is a project manager um, who's unafraid of ambiguity who can take an impossible task like writing a thesis or doing a dissertation or creating a podcast series and break it up into like milestones and deliverables and show success and show progress um you know, and everybody's self-starting and knows how to collaborate. Like yeah. these are skills that are that are hard to gain in other contexts, and I think extremely translatable to the jobs I've had and all the jobs I've seen post. <laughs> um, but the things that they don't do is they don't tell you to focus on those things, right? Like it's very much like I am an expert in this research. Yeah. Like well. I have a friend who pointed out to me, she's a very successful UX researcher, um, Dr. Tereng Asadi. Uh, She's at Microsoft, very high powered UX researcher position. And she was like, you know, you do have, I was like, well, I don't have UX research skills. She's like, you absolutely do have UX research skills. Like, why is your dissertation just listed here as a dissertation? She's like, you are a principal researcher for a you know multi-year-long project that you got grant money for you funded you like did all these things and so there's like those kind of pieces about translation and being a little bit more honest about what we're actually doing yeah it's it's not that you don't gain the skills in your um academic journey it's that you lose the skills of how to explain them to people outside of your academic journey. And so anyone in academia, if I say I did a dissertation, they they think of all those things. Oh, wow, she she did this project for multiple years. Oh my gosh, she also got a grant. She, you, They hear those words as soon as they hear one word dissertation. Yeah. But outside of our little bubble, no one quite knows exactly what that entails because they've yeah. not done one. They want to know how does that benefit me? And so that makes sense that the skill you need is how do I translate this to people outside? Which you also have because of teaching, right? So like, it's this, it's just, you have to, it's just, and this is a big part of my work at Red Hat is experts are, experts talking to experts is this wonderful, delightful space because they can say so many things with one word, mm-hmm. but they're going to lose anybody else that's not in the room. And academics are the same way. So it's just that slowing it down. What does that mean? (laughs) Do you often have postgrads come um, and ask you questions or uh, especially about the job market outside of academia? Um, And then how do you advise them? I do. Yeah. And actually, 
I think everyone who I've talked to who has made the jump from academia to an outside academia job has people sliding into their emails, <laughs> into their direct messages all the time. I It's kind of an underground network because I think that it's, it's an unspoken reality that yeah. people aren't all going to get the tenure track job. Um, and it's also kind of a harsh moment because if you finish the PhD, you are what, 10 years in, right? 10 years into grad school. Um, that is serious time and resources. Oftentimes for people, it's delayed financial planning. It's delayed family planning. It's moving to places where they may or may not feel comfortable. Um, it's a lot to invest in with a very small goalpost because right now the goalpost that celebrated is not, hey, you got a PhD, you are like a recognized expert. I, th I heard somewhere that's like 3% of the world's population has PhDs, right? Like, yeah. we're not going to celebrate that. You only count if you get a tenure track job. Yeah, and so thinking about alternatives can feel like a dream dying, I think. It can feel like, well, why did I do this? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that... Yeah. I think that that's why people do kind of, I think it is a big conversation. I think it's happening outside of the university system and in quiet ways that I think are getting louder and louder. Even over the past year, you see this as more of a conversation, yeah. but I don't think it can happen inside until like that issue of taboo is kind of addressed. Yeah. yeah. Who's going to pop the bubble? Who's going to pop the dream bubble that everyone who gets a PhD is going to be a professor one day. No one wants to pop that bubble because I think as soon as you pop it, now you're worried, are any, is anyone even going to want a PhD? I don't, I, I can't do anything else with this PhD, right? Stereotypes. And then, so who inside the PhD system wants to pop that bubble? Cause then you don't have any more PhDs. But see, this is, oh, so I'm so glad you phrased it this way because this is like the thing that, that uh, kills me the most, <laughs> kills me the most because you have, the smartest people I've ever met are inside the academic, uh, the academic system, like beautifully gorgeous thinkers who can like in the moment give poetic responses about like alternatives to capitalism, but they cannot escape the pressure of trying to articulate a case that is often a business case to like board of governors and state legislators about why higher education matters. And they're under a lot of pressure to do this, right? Like higher education is under pressure. It's being defunded. Um, the public at large is kind of swinging into an interesting anti-intellectual space, right? It's a very threatened thing. And so, of course, part of what academics are going to do is say, well, we are special, like we, you need us. But then they're using the same sort of, it like collapses into the same sort of language that graduate students use, right? Like we are special because the research is special. And this is unique and you can't do this outside. And as long as like that continues to be the only way to defend higher education, I think the flip side of that is that graduate students 
and faculty themselves are inside of a system that is telling them that they are special because of one specific thing. Mm -hmm. And that even if they have the skills to leave it, if they leave it, well, did you actually have the skills to leave it? Did you fail at the system? Are you a sellout because of the system? Like, When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, you didn't have the stamina to stay at seven adjunct professorships for a hundred years with your two kids and jump to seven states. How yeah. dare you leave yeah. <laughs> leave your PhD goal, leave your professor goal? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and too, like I think I, I haven't read this in a while, and so like this is you know one of those blurry. I don't know that I have a citation for this, but. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that after the first year of adjuncting, it becomes even harder to get the tenure track job, right? Like tenure track usually goes to somebody who is still in a PhD program or just graduated. So it hurts those folks too, where they can't imagine alternatives. And then all of a sudden, you know, like, well, this is the only meaningful thing because I have invested everything to do this. Yeah. And so it is this moment of, I think, real grief and real grappling with, was this a job? What do I do for a job? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I tell people who do ask me, like, are you glad you went? I am so glad I went. I am so glad I got the PhD. I am a fundamentally different person because of UNC Chapel Hill. I am a different thinker. I have a different perspective than many of my coworkers and friends. Um, the way that I engage with the world is different. Having that time to like languish and I mean, it's a lot of work. (laughs) Like languish is maybe not the right language, but like having that time where a significant part of your job is to read and engage in conversations that have been going on across time and across geography is such a gift. Um, The problem is, is it should be funded, like people should not take out loans for this work, um, and that it is a job. But it's a beautiful thing. And until until we until we talk about why it's a beautiful thing, distinct from the tenure track, I we are in a losing position to defend higher education from the things that are attacking it. The goal doesn't need to be a tenure track professorship. The goal could be knowledge right like until we or the goal could be a tech job or the goal could be x y and z right but 
I think that's really interesting to put it that way, that the goal doesn't have to be this tenure track position. Well, it's also an interesting thing to talk about goals, right? Like, so I, a friend at Red Hat pointed this out to me, um, the chief of staff uh, for the, for the for a CTO was like, academics have a almost treadmill understanding of job growth, like in job progression and professional development. Like you do this and this and this and this and this. And he's like, these other jobs don't work that way. And you don't commit to a job for a lifetime. Yeah. And so when he takes a different job, his goals are even phrased differently than anything that I was doing, right? And so like thinking about like, what was the goal of the PhD for me? Um, And is that even the right language? Like would, would the business case for higher education be a voting public that can you know, discriminate against falsified information or ask questions or champion inclusivity and diverse voices in ways that like are held to a slightly higher standard, you know? And we have space to ask that and make that argument if graduate students are paid a living wage. So as long as there's still students taking out loans, like then that becomes a much more difficult thing to do. Yeah. And as long as we treat it as this feudal system, we're like, well, if you just do these things, you'll get the job. Like, it's just a terrible game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's not proven effective so far. How would you advise someone, maybe in me and Jacob's position, maybe still in their PhD, who realize they want to go outside the academic field, what things should they be thinking about? What should they be looking for? How should they, how should they be communicating their skills that we know they have? So the first thing that I would advise is, um, and this is a little controversial, but like, do not take out loans for a graduate program. Like, at least not a graduate program in the humanities. Uh, you know, I had a student take out $400,000 for dental school, but is making like 600000 in New York. So like, okay, you know, but like, <laughs> but I just, I think that the, um, in the best case scenario, you're going to have grad school paid for. And that's the only scenario you should go mm-hmm. to grad school with. And even then, like, it's a pause on your retirement and your savings. And I think that that pause is then really felt when you are on the job market and it adds a layer of pressure and grief. So, like, I would just say, you know, that that was something that was told to me. And I truly believe that everybody's super smart and has a lot of options. If you're looking at grad school, you have options. Like, take care of your financial life first. Only go somewhere where you are valued in that way. Yeah. Then the second thing I would say is, you know, uh, be curious and be open and look at, look at your training as a job. Be thoughtful about what skills you're doing and like slowing that down for yourself. Right. Um, so keeping track of, you know, I did a podcast and like, here are all the uh, project management skills I gained from that. And maybe looking at project management jobs and seeing how they're describing skills and like walking yourself through how that translates. Yeah. And if you find a piece of it that you really like, um, 
like teaching or research, looking at those jobs and then saying, okay, well, what else are they asking for? Mm -hmm. You know, if it is project management, I have a friend from UNC who's now a project manager. He loved that part of the process. He went and got the PMP certification Mm -hmm. and that combined with his experience allowed him to enter a a mid-level job, you know? So I think being open, being curious, um, being like knowing the value of what you're doing and the good that it's giving to you for the time that you're in the PhD program, the five to seven years or the, or in the master's program, the two to three years, like treasuring that for what it is, but not getting caught in the imagination of your committee. Right. Because these are people who have succeeded within the system. They're wonderful people. They're super brilliant people, but maybe also they're not the ones who are best equipped to help you think about (laughs) what else you can do. Um, So like just meeting, you know, talking to alumni, being curious, being open, joining a horror meetup (laughs) group or like literally anything else, like just expand your circle yeah and think about it as like you are in control of your career like you you not necessarily even if you want the tenure track job you don't have to be on that treadmill like you don't i think it's very easy to get into a phd program and get really overwhelmed by everything you need and like you're handed a packet as like by year three you're going to do languages and by three and a half you're going to do exams and by year four you're going to do this and five you're going to like it's all laid out and i think you have to be like, okay, this is it. But also, like, how do I want to set my own professional development goals? Yeah. Even if they're just being curious. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Also, I just thought of this now. Languages has to be a great, a great marketable skill. It is. If you think about it that way. Um, I, always, I always forget that a lot of programs uh, have you do languages. There's so many good skills. I mean, like localization is a cool job. <laughs> like I have a friend who's constantly looking at the Pokemon um, company because they know Japanese and they're like, well, as soon as they hire somebody here, I was like, yeah, you'd be great at it. And uh, I know somebody else who is a freelancer. She's finishing her PhD and she's a freelancer and she's translating board games from Japanese. Like it's just, I don't know. So many skills. So many options. Yeah. Um, Okay. So with that being said, we've really touched on um, us. Like what can I do as, as a student? What can I do looking outside? Um, What procedures, skills, or uh, courses, anything do you think that institutions, especially uh, departments in the humanities could uh, implement to better prepare their students leaving their programs? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, The first thing I'm going to say is that like pay grads full stop. It's a job. I think if we treat it like a job, you know, it's a job. And there's that horrible issue where like graduate students are often classified as student staff and that affects insurance, it affects leave, like it, it does all these things. Like, I think that if we can pay students so that they can live <laughs> while doing a program and not leave with debt and loans, that solves a lot of issues. Yeah. It allows people to make a choice to go do this for other professional development issues, right? Like, yeah, I chose to go do it to learn how to be a thinker and 
gain, rapidly gain professionalization skills that are hugely benefiting me in the corporate world. Um, and that's just the reality. Like you do have to, when you, when you switch a career, you have to be ready to maybe go into a little bit more of a junior position, but in every single case I've seen PhDs, even if they start out more junior rapidly get to a senior mid-level position and catch up to their peers who have been doing the job the whole time because you have skills that are hard to teach and are hard won. Um, but it has to start with departments and universities paying grads and not offering positions if they can't fill them, if they can't pay for them. Um, other things that I think departments can and should do is, um, alumni networks, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, faculty are pressed with time too. Like they are not, they are, they are suffering under the same system. And rather than them having to shoulder all the weight of preparing students to leave a system that they are still deeply invested in sharing that. Right. And if you have a robust alumni network, what you're also doing is showing your grad students that like, here's all sorts of versions of success. Like, and you're still part of this intellectual community, even if you go do something else. And we still want to talk with you and work with you. Um, And that can also just open up the imagination of everything you can do, right? (laughs) Like, how did you get into tech? Well, let me tell you. Um, So I think those are two things. I did see Brandeis University has started this really great thing where they are offering fellowships. So they um, got a pocket of money and they are having their PhDs write for fellowships that they then fund and give them basically an unpaid internship into other places that the student wants to work. So it's kind of like a way to like get that student in somewhere and that institution doesn't have to pay, the university is paying. Yeah. And then they get like, is things like the university press or like the local center for democracy, like that kind of stuff is really cool. And I think also helps address some of this. Um, I think identifying complementary skills, like we've all been in the CV workshops, (laughs) you know, resumes are important. Um, encouraging students to be looking at uh, job descriptions and thinking about like, okay, well, you know, you want to go into content. So you know that SEO is going to be important. Is there a way we can double that up with your research plan? You know, like um, counting different things as successful public portfolios, I think are really important. Um, yeah. So maybe it doesn't make sense for everybody to do a dissertation. <laughs> you know? So yeah. like, what can you produce if you are a talented humanities researcher and you want to go into videography can you produce a documentary in the archives yeah you know like who think about who it's for and how it can be used to produce something that you can hand over in an interview um and to that too i think there's such a system for letters of recommendation in place like Mm -hmm. faculty are very used to writing letters of recommendation but they're all for other academic jobs. I think faculty need to learn how to write letters and little blurbs that can help students in different contexts. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, like maybe it's opening part of the lever or maybe it's adding something to their LinkedIn or giving them something on a freelance website. Yeah. 
there's a wealth of ideas. You just, they just need to start trying some stuff. Yeah. Start somewhere, please. Yeah. One. We'll start with paying. (laughs) Start with paying and then like follow up with literally any of these. Any of the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think, um, especially talking to you today, it's been really nice and refreshing um, because it's, we're not trying to beat down the academic system by any means. Um, and I, I, that's not the goal of this podcast. We, we all know we're in the same bus. We're all struggling the same fight. And we have been struggling the same fight since we talked to um, a professor at, at the University mm-hmm. of Florida, um, who when she was going, she's been there for 15 years. She's She was struggling with the same problems in the 90s. And so yeah. n- acknowledging that this isn't a today problem, acknowledging that there are active things programs can be doing, and not just programs, colleges as well. Uh, We talked to a lot of people who had problems with um, their college career centers, not them not even being able to help um, a a graduate student level person try to find a job outside of their track, right? Um, And so I think, yeah, I don't know, talking to you has been really refreshing because it's not this like, Oh, we're no one has hope. It's like we, we all think education is important, but now let's see how more important it can be than just being a professor. Being a professor is great. That is not the the yeah. argument today, but acknowledging that we have to do other things. Yeah, I think it's a it's it's both a like material argument and it's kind of like a wah wah we shall be friends argument. But like it's true. Like a. Like people need to be financially supported and stable to be able to do anything. And so like that has to be addressed first. And then B, recognizing that like, you know, graduate students are the most vulnerable, but there's pressure all the way up the system and all the way up the system, the language we are using to defend higher education is failing. So how can we like take the pressure off the people who are the most vulnerable while also start to think about you know, why are we doing this? <laughs> like, it's a beautiful and amazing thing. And, you know, I think it, the world will be extremely worse off if we lose higher education. I loved talking with Shannon because she not only gave advice for students who are adventuring outside of academia, but she gave specific examples of different things departments and institutions can implement to aid their students entering those job markets. Totally. I think her advice on um, her advice for PhD students finding ways to market um, and finding new language to talk about the skills that they have, whether it's our um, project management skills or um, other kind of skills that non-academic jobs are looking for that PhD students have and are equipped for, they just talk about it differently. Um, I thought that was really interesting. And I also like what she had to say about um, how departments should be utilizing their alumni um, that have jobs outside of the, the academy um, as resources, you know, when the faculty don't know how to answer a question or the faculty don't know something that those alumni, um, who were successful in their graduate programs and got their PhD and are now successful in a field outside of academia, um, that they can serve as a resource to those students as well. So listening to all these interviews was a lot of information. 
do you feel better about going into your PhD program or are you more nervous? And with that, what do you think was one of your biggest takeaways? No, I definitely feel better. I think it's one of those things where I now know more in-depth people's experiences um, and know a little more about the problem, as well as having lots of really useful um, tips and advice on how to navigate this um, as I work my way through the PhD program. And if at some point I decide that I want to pursue a career outside of academia, that I have been working um, with those skills kind of in the back of my head so that I can make that pivot at any moment um, and be successful, whether I decide to pursue academia or pivot and pursue a non-academic job. Yeah, I found these interviews super helpful and understanding that it's not a specific department problem. It's not a specific field problem. It's truly the humanities as a whole and possibly more than just the humanities. We have talked to English professors, history PhDs, religious studies PhDs. We have truly ran the gambit of departments from across multiple states shows that we're in this together, that it's not an isolated issue at one liberal arts college down the road. It is felt at big state schools, small liberal arts colleges, probably some other ones as well. And so we have to prepare not only our students for leaving our programs, but we also have to prepare our faculty that are already in the systems. Because without all of us understanding that this is a larger problem than just ourselves, none of us will be able to help each other. Thank you so much, Erica. This has been so helpful. And I feel a lot better about starting my PhD program. Um, You know, I always love chatting, but I'm actually running late for orientation. So I have to hop off and head over there. Um, But, uh, you know, talk soon. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this series. We are very grateful to have so many people willing to participate and educate not only those going into a graduate program, but also those already in the academy. Graduates from programs of all shapes and sizes are struggling. We created this series to shine a small light on a problem that requires the attention and action of all of those who are proud to be in academia. Education is valuable. Do not let these issues continue to be pushed under the rug until students no longer want to enroll in higher education. College is a time to learn, explore, and prepare for a life after school. Let's help our students do that at all levels and for all potential jobs. The Study Religion Podcast is a production of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Alabama. This episode was made with the help of Shannon Trosper-Shorey, Jacob Barrett, and Erica Bennett. Follow the Department of Religious Studies on Twitter and Instagram at Study Religion or on Facebook at facebook.com slash R-E-L at U-A. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, and give us a rating and review. 